0: Well, the greatest privilege we have is the privilege of opening up God's Word together. So let me invite you to open up your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking together at John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, and I've entitled this morning's message, Introducing the Bread of Life. You see, today we get to study one of the most familiar stories in the entire New Testament when Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000 men. If you grew up in the church, this was probably one of the first stories about Christ that you ever remember hearing. In fact, if you're anything like me, you can still close your eyes and picture the flannel graph loaves and fishes from the Sunday school lesson. And today we're going to revisit this familiar account to see what it shows us about Christ. So let me read the passage for you and let me ask for your patience in advance because I grabbed my ESV Bible on the way out. I normally preach out of that on Sundays. I know you, all, most of you, many of you, some of you are going to have the New American Standard. It's very close. Very close, but let me read to you from the ESV, our passage for this morning, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves and left uh, the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now this is a passage that is almost universally familiar to anyone who knows anything about the Bible, but just as commonly as it has been heard, it has also commonly been misunderstood and misinterpreted some try to spiritualize away the significance of this text claiming that this is just a story a parable that we don't have to take it literal because it would be crazy to think all those people could have been miraculously fed by that little amount of food they would spiritualize this away to say this was not a historical event that took place and of course we know that's not true that there are others who would try to rationalize away this miracle to say, yes, it was a historical event, but, but it's not what you think. Jesus didn't miraculously feed the 5,000 with this little boy's lunch. Instead, when this boy brought his lunch forward and was willing to share with everyone else, it inspired all of the crowd to share their food with one another. And so the moral of the story is not that Jesus does miracles. The moral of the story is that we should all have potluck dinners every Sunday. Of course, we know that's not a right understanding of this passage. There are others, and this might be even more common, there are others who try to personalize away the meaning of this text. In other words, they read this text, and this text is all about them and their desires and getting what they want. They would interpret this as a genuine miracle that took place, and they would take the point of this miracle to mean that if you follow Jesus, he will give you whatever you want and more. If you want 12 baskets left over in your life, then follow Jesus. And of course, we understand that that is not a right understanding of this passage either. So what is the truth of this passage? Well, if we're going to understand the truth of this passage, we need to start by looking closely at it. And one of the things that we recognize immediately when we read through this account is is that the sign done by Christ in this account was an unmistakable miracle the feeding of the 5,000 men, this was an unmistakable miracle. In fact, it's interesting that of the four gospel accounts, all four of them record this miracle. This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospel accounts besides the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Additionally, this was the miracle that Jesus did that was the most witnessed out of any of them. 5,000 men saw it, plus all the other people were there. The 5,000 were probably the heads of the household. So there would have been tens of thousands of people who witnessed this miracle. It was unmistakably done. The people recognized it. The people saw that. Jesus fed them. This was the first time that the people of Israel had been fed in this way since Yahweh poured manna down from heaven. Everybody saw it when that happened, and everybody saw it when Jesus did this. John MacArthur, commenting on these verses, said this, Although all of Jesus' miracles were astonishing, the feeding of the 5,000 demonstrates his creative power more clearly and impressively than any other miracle. In fact, in terms of the number of people affected, it was the largest of his miracles. This was unmistakably a miracle done by Christ, and it was recorded in the Gospel of John by the Apostle John for an unmistakable purpose. see, if you do some study in the Gospel of John, one of the things that you'll find is particularly in the first half of John's Gospel, he organizes his writing around seven signs that Jesus does. These are seven significant miracles that John records, and all of these miracles are intended to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, at the end of his Gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 31, the Apostle John says, Look, I could have recorded a lot more miracles than just these, but I have chosen these that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So each one of these signs is given to us for a specific purpose. And each one of these signs fulfills that purpose by introducing readers to a new truth about Christ that must be believed each one of these signs points us to some revelation of who Christ is as the son of god for example in chapter 5 readers were introduced to jesus as the son of god when he healed the invalid man there was that man who couldn't get up and walk to the water himself The water wouldn't have healed him anyway. It was all just a superstition he had. But Jesus came and he healed him. And not only did he heal him, but he performed that sign on the Sabbath to demonstrate that he had the power and the authority to do that miracle. And the point of John chapter 5 is that Jesus is the Son of God equal with the Father. That's the point introduced in John chapter 5. And in John chapter 6, the apostle follows this same pattern by using a sign, the feeding of the 5,000 men, to introduce his readers to a truth about Christ. In particular, the truth that's introduced in John chapter 6 is the truth that we find in verse 48 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That's the main point of John chapter 6. Jesus is the bread of life. John uses the feeding of the 5,000 to introduce Jeter, uh, readers to the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the source of all spiritual provision. John put this sign here to point us to that truth, that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one that we can look to for all the provision that we need. Yes, physical, but more significantly, the provision that we need in order to have eternal life. As one commentator put it, this sign then shows Jesus to be the supplier of people's need. And that's really the main point that we're going to see as we work through this account together. And as we work through this account together, really we can organize it into three main headings. Three main headings that organize this account. And and we find the first of these main headings in verses one through five, where we see what we'll call the setting of this miracle. The setting of this miracle. Now, make no mistake about it, there's a lot that could be said about the setting of this miracle, especially since all four gospel accounts tell us about what Jesus did on this day. However, since we're focusing on John's gospel, and we're trying to understand why John recorded this miracle, we're going to mainly limit our study to the details that John gives us. And one of the things that is absolutely clear when you look at what John gives to us here is that this miracle was not some obscure miracle. There were plenty of witnesses to what Jesus did on that day. In fact, notice in verses 1-4 through 4 how John begins by pointing out the huge crowds that were present. Verse 1 begins by saying, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And and when John uses the phrase, after this, it it, it doesn't always mean exactly after. In other words, it doesn't mean that that the very next thing Jesus did after John chapter 5 was this. This is kind of like a marker in John's gospel to say, this is the next chapter in what I'm writing. In fact, when you recognize that John 6 takes place around the time of the Passover, and you recognize in John 5 that there was another feast that was going on, depending on what the feast in John 5 was, it would have at least been a few months that took place in between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, maybe even. If the the, uh, feast in John 5 was a Passover, it may have even been a full year that takes place between John 5 and John chapter 6. You say, why is that significant? And the answer is because Jesus had a lot of time to do a lot of miracles in between that time. Jesus had a lot of time to, to, to spread his truth and to preach. In fact, during this intervening period between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, the, the other gospel writers tell us that's when he took 70 of his followers, 70 of his disciples, and sent them out to do their own preaching and their own miracles. In other words, by the time you get to John 6, 1, Jesus was no obscure individual. Everyone in Israel knew who he was. Everyone knew who he was. He had done miracles. He had done healing. He had done preaching. And that's why the crowds were clamoring around him. Verse 2 says a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And And the way John records this in the original, the way the the Greek would read was that the crowds just kept following him and kept seeing miracles because Jesus kept doing these things now for John's part, John doesn't record a high volume of miracles in his gospel, only a select number, as I mentioned to you a moment ago, but that doesn't mean Jesus wasn't doing numerous miracles. Jesus was doing an incredible number of miracles. That's why these massive crowds were clamoring all around him and constantly seeing him preach with authority like they had never seen before, doing miracles and healing the sick and casting out demons, all things that they had never seen any kind of teacher do before. Jesus was a teacher, a rabbi like none other, which is why the crowds just kept coming to him. Now, at this point, in John 6, verse 3, John goes on to say that Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And, And we know from Mark's account of this same time period that what Jesus was trying to do was that Jesus was trying to get a break from the crowds. He was trying to take some time out to debrief his disciples. They had just gotten back from this missionary journey where where 70 of them had gone out two by two and done these miracles and done this preaching. They now came back to Christ. Christ had been teaching. Christ had been doing miracles. And so Jesus pulls them along into the mountains to try to gather them together and debrief with them. Actually, where he went would have been the high ground that, that is the modern-day Golan Heights. It was a desolate place where Jesus was trying to get away from the crowds, but as was so often the case for Christ, and as often is the case even in our own life, ministry got in the way of rest. Jesus' respite had to take a backseat to the ministry need. Why? Because the people just kept coming. And you might think at this point, where are these people coming from? You might even think to yourself, do these people have jobs? Do these people have farms they have to take care of and animals to take care of? How can all these people just keep coming to Christ? Well, I can't give you a full answer to that, but John has given us at least a partial answer in verse 4 because it says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Why were there were there so many people, so many Jews, out and about and on the move and able to detour their plans to try to find where Christ was? Because they were on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. Everyone was out and about. That's why John mentions this here. There were so many pilgrims bound for Jerusalem that the crowds had, had exponentially grown. In other words, the setting for this miracle is the huge crowds that were gathered around Christ. And by the way, they weren't just huge crowds, they were hungry crowds as well. Because notice verse 5 Jesus lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, the other gospel accounts add some some detail to this that that they came to Jesus after a full day of ministry saying Jesus I think it's time to stop I think we've done enough for the day these people are hungry and probably we're hungry too is what they said it's time to stop enough we've got it we don't even know where we're going to get food how could you possibly feed all of these people but Jesus instead of acquiescing to his disciples' request, looks at Philip and says, Hey, Philip, where are we going to get enough food for these people? You might think, why is he picking on Philip? What did Philip do to deserve that? Well, Philip was actually uh, from nearby Bethsaida, which means that he was kind of the local hometown boy. And if you want to know where all the best restaurants are, the best place to get food is, who do you talk to? You talk to the guy that's from there. Hey, Philip, is there anywhere around where we can get food for all of these people? Uh, uh, Philip, have, have they built a Costco here yet? Where are we going to get food for all of these people? Also, there is an interesting parallel an interesting allusion here to numbers 11:13 when Jesus uh, excuse me when Moses is in the wilderness looking at all the people of Israel in the wilderness and he prays to Yahweh where are we going to get meat for all these people there's no human way that all of these people could eat out here in the wilderness and Jesus is alluding to that very thing as the scene is set for this miracle. And that's really what the first five verses do for us. They, they set the scene. They show us there were massive crowds in the middle of nowhere with nothing to eat and no way to provide for themselves. Which leads us to the second heading in our study. Verses 6-11, through 11, we'll call this the sign. We've seen the setting leading up to this, but now we see the, the sign that Jesus performs. And really, this is important for us to see, because in each of the signs that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John, he is doing something that only the Son of God can do. And in this case, he performs really what is a creative sign, a creative miracle. He uses a little bit of food to create food that did not previously exist. And in the process of creating food that previously did not exist, Jesus is also seeking to generate faith that did not previously exist. In fact, notice how this sign is a faith-inducing, faith-producing sign. Jesus asked this question to Philip, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? And in verse 6 it says, He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. In other words, Jesus' question was not an inquiry about food. It was a probe for faith in the hearts of his disciples. Jesus knew the answer to the question already. Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he also knew that his disciples did not have the kind of faith that immediately looked to him for provision. And that's why Jesus' objective here was far greater than dinner. This miracle was aimed at at changing the hearts, especially of his disciples, and teaching his disciples to look to him as the bread of life. That's what John means here when he says he was testing their faith. By the way, Jesus often does the same thing for us, doesn't he? Jesus often uses this same tactic in our own growth and sanctification. He, he puts us in situations where we don't know what the outcome is going to be. And he puts us in situ- situations where there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to change those circumstances. He puts us in situations where we don't know how we're going to get out of it or, or even how we're going to move forward. Why does he do that? Well, when God tests our faith in this way, it's not because he does not know if we have faith. Jesus knew what was in Philip's heart. He didn't ask the question from Philip to see what was in Philip's heart. He already knew it. In John 2, verse 24, it says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was in Philip's heart. He didn't ask the question so that he could find out. Why did he ask the question? He asked the question so that Philip could find out. See, the Lord often puts us in these kind of faith testing circumstances, for starters, to give us clarity in our own faith. If you would have asked Philip earlier in that day, Philip, you just came back from this great missionary journey. Seventy of you went out. You did signs. You did miracles. You preached the gospel. Undoubtedly, you saw people come to follow Jesus as the Messiah. Do you trust in Jesus as the Messiah? Philip would have said, of course. So Jesus says, where are we going to get the provision we need? And Philip says, I have no clue. There was weakness of faith there that Philip didn't even know he had. The Lord often puts us in these kind of hope against hope and and faith testing situations so that we can see the weakness of our own hearts. We can see the weakness of our own faith. We, like the, 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 the beleaguered father in Mark chapter 9, can say, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. The Lord puts us in those situations. And and not only so that we can see the weakness in our faith that needs to be addressed, but also so that weakness can be strengthened. James 1 is a familiar passage in verses 3 and 4. It says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Philip, your faith is not steadfast enough, so I'm going to test it. You say, how does that work? And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In that moment, Philip thought he was lacking everything. But he had Christ standing right in front of him. And it was only the weakness of his faith that that, that prevented him from seeing that he lacked nothing in Christ. So what did the Lord do? He tested his faith to open his eyes, to strengthen his faith, so that he would come to and submit to Christ as his ultimate provision. And it's this faith clarifying, faith strengthening, faith producing grace of testing that led Peter to write in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? You may be here today grieved by what? Various trials. Maybe it's bereavement, maybe it's illness, maybe it's your work situation, maybe it's a family situation, maybe it's a relationship with another believer, maybe it's an unbeliever you're praying would repent and become a believer. There are various trials experienced by various people in the congregation this very moment. Why does the Lord let us go through those things? He lets us go through those things for the very same reason why he asked Philip that question. Here's what Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why the Lord tests our faith. And when he tests our faith, Sometimes he tests our faith. In fact, you see that even here in this passage. Verse 7 Philip answered him and said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. In other words, this is an impossible situation. One day was a denarius. So 200 denarii worth of food, that was 200 days of work. If the average person works about 250 days out of the year, you're looking at about 80% of your annual income. If you took 80% of your annual income, you would not be able to feed all these people who are there, even just a little bit. How could we possibly feed these people? I mean, Jesus, even if we had that money, or even if we had 10 times that amount of money so that we could actually buy the food for these people, where are we going to find that food? Where are we going to find that Costco, Jesus? Or maybe the Sam's Club. Or maybe if they were doing really well for themselves, they could have gone to Wegmans. Where are you going to find that much food? tens of thousands of people there, where are you going to find that much food? And Jesus, even if we had the money, and even if we could find a grocery store in the first century with refrigerators that had all that food, how then would we transport all that food out into the wilderness? One commentator Describe Philip's response in this way. Philip's mental computer began to work like a cash register. That, by the way, is something that commonly happens to fathers. Philip's mental computer began to work like a cash register, and all he could think about was the total cash that would be needed to provide just a little bread for each person. And here's the thing that I'll have you note. Jesus never corrects Philip. He never says, Philip, you're wrong. We could just go get this food over here. Or, Philip, this is really not that big a deal. You're exaggerating this. Philip wasn't exaggerating, but he was missing the solution, wasn't he? You ever find yourself in that moment where the Lord's testing your faith and you're just not sure what to do? What do you do? How do you respond in faith to an impossible situation? when the Lord puts you in circumstances and and you don't yet know how to move forward or how the Lord's going to provide, what do you do in that moment? Well, you could let your mental cash register start to work, or you could respond in faith. You say, what would that look like? Well, just a, just a few practical pastoral encouragements for you. When your faith is tested, impossible situation, you don't know what to do next. What then should you do next? Well, for starters, do what you know that you're supposed to do. There may be some things you're still not sure of how to handle. Philip didn't know where he was going to get the food. And and in your own test of faith, you may not know exactly how to proceed, but there are other things in your life you know that you're supposed to do. Do those things. Do what you know that you're supposed to do. And I say this because too many times I have met with individuals for spiritual counsel when they faced a trying, difficult situation where they didn't know what to do, where they stopped doing everything boy, pastor, we haven't been at church for the last month just because we're going through this spiritual trial and we didn't know what to do. Well, I don't know what to do exactly either, but go to church would have been on my list. When you don't know what to do, do what you know you're supposed to do. Start with that. Pursue the means of grace. Pursue the practical disciplines of the faith. Serve, be served, be around other believers. When you don't know what to do in general, do specifically what you know you're supposed to do. Additionally, when when your faith is tested with an impossible situation and you don't know what to do, additionally, one of the things you should do is you should go back to Scripture to get clarity on what God's Word says. Go back to God's Word. Go back to God's Word with the question, Lord, what would faithfulness look like in my situation? Too often we're confused by situations because we think, how can we solve this problem? when it might be an unsolvable problem. The question we should be asking, and that Scripture is answering, is how can I be faithful in this situation? That's what we need to do. You don't know what to do? Go back to Scripture. You again would be shocked, or maybe you wouldn't, by how many people come to me to say, Pastor, I need spiritual counsel in this area. And I'll say to them, well, well, I know you to be a member of this church. I know you to be somebody who not only owns a Bible, but, but loves the Bible. What does God's word say about this situation? To which I very commonly hear, you know, I have not even checked yet. Great, that's what we're here for. Go back to Scripture to get clarity on it. Uh, additionally, when you, like Philip, are in a situation where your faith is tested and you don't know what to do, another, another important thing to remember is this. If there are things that you cannot control, then prayerfully wait on God to resolve them while you stay faithful. If there are things that are beyond your control that you have to wait on the Lord, then just prayerfully wait on the Lord. Cast those anxieties upon the Lord, trusting that he cares for you, and continue to pray that God would make it clear how you are to respond, and God would make the provision for this situation clear as well. Go to the Lord in prayer. And then finally, what should you do in an impossible situation? What does faith look like in a possible situation? Well, well, finally, and maybe most importantly, What you should do is never doubt God's power, wisdom, and love for you. Never allow bitterness of heart to seep in. Never allow God's timing when it's different than your timing to affect your view of who He is. You trust His power. You trust His wisdom. You trust His love because He has put you in that situation so that you can grow in trusting Him. Christ put Philip in a situation that would test his faith, and he often does the same thing with us. And and what Philip had to learn was to look to Christ first for provision, and that's exactly what we must learn as well. That's what made this sign a faith-producing sign. But of course, it wasn't merely a faith-producing sign. It was also a food-producing sign, wasn't it? Verse 8, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? As one commentator put it, this amount of food was ludicrously inadequate. Imagine trying to to, to feed the entire crowd at a Baltimore Orioles game with a school lunchbox. Actually, that might be possible this season. Uh, <laughs> now that I think about it, so scratch that, maybe a Nationals game or a Ravens game. But in this case, completely inadequate. I mean, all this kid has are these, these little barley loaves, which really were just kind of like a glorified, dense cracker. Although, good news for some of you, they would have been gluten-free and paleo-friendly as well but there's just five of these little things. And then there's the fish, which would have been small, almost sardine-like pickled fish. And Andrew makes it clear. Jesus, this boy's lunchbox is not enough to feed the tens of thousands of people who are here. What are we going to do? Jesus knew exactly what to do, which is why in verse 10, Jesus says, have the people sit down. And we know that that they were arranged in different order. And it says that the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. They were probably arranged by household. So when we read that there were 5,000 men, we know there also would have been women and children there because they were traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. So, so it may even be that there were 5,000 households represented in this miracle, which meant there would have been tens of thousands of people there. Jesus says, have them all sit down and get ready for lunch. And it's interesting, John includes this small little detail that there was much grass there, much green grass there. When he does that, I can't help but think of Psalm 23, where the Lord is our shepherd, leads us into the pastures that we need. That's exactly what Christ is doing here. And as he gets everybody seated, verse 11, he took the loaves and when he had given thanks, so he begins to pray. He has everybody sit down. Okay, is everybody ready for lunch? Okay, I'm gonna pray over this meal. And and if we can go back and, and stream video of historical accounts in heaven this is one i want to go back and see i want to see this prayer of christ because here he is blessing this food i want to see what his disciples were doing in the background because they're probably looking at each other going oh, where are we going to feed all Spirit? i have no idea where this food's going to come from i mean the same thing that our conference organizers are thinking when i invited all of you to just come without registering to our conference jesus's disciples are thinking. Where is this food going to come from? And yet, of course, Jesus knew. Because when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Isn't that an amazing phrase at the end? In our own culture, we often eat as much as we want, which is usually too much. Speaking for myself, not for you, but for myself. The first century Jew. They never got to eat as much as they want. They ate as much as they had, but they never ate as much as they want. They had enough just to get by, but they didn't have enough to to fill themselves to capacity. And yet, here, Jesus just keeps providing them food. You want dinner? I'll give you as much as you can handle. It was an all-you-can-eat spiritual buffet and physical buffet. And isn't that an amazing picture of the provision of Christ? We don't always know how he could possibly provide for our needs. And yet every time we come back to him for more grace, what do we find? Same thing the disciples found, more provision. Whether it's the faith that we need in the midst of our trial or the food that we need to sustain our lives, we can come to Christ with our needs. That's the point of this sign. And this is a significant point. In fact, that's the third main heading I want to go over with you this morning. We saw the setting for this miracle. We saw the sign of this miracle. But also, I want to see in verses 12 through 15, the significance of this miracle. In other words, what is John's point? And of course, I already answered that question for you a little bit ago. John's point is that he is introducing us to Jesus as the bread of life. He is showing us that Jesus is someone that we can always come to with all of our needs, especially our need for salvation and the forgiveness of sin. And when we come to Jesus in that way, when we recognize that Jesus is the ultimate provision through through His death, burial, and resurrection, He is the ultimate provision for our sins and for our salvation. In His Lordship over all things, He is the ultimate provider for all the grace that we need. When we come to Jesus in that way, what we find is divine provision. Notice verse 12 says, when they had eaten their fill, He told His disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. In other words, not only was there enough, there was more than enough. Which by the way, believer Uh, For those of you who have been following the Lord for quite some time, how many times have you experienced something similar to this where you said, how could the Lord possibly provide? And then, then when you look back years later, you say, wow, the Lord abundantly provided. That's what Jesus did here. It wasn't in the manner the disciples expected or even the timetable that they expected, but it was according to his grace and mercy. And really what's interesting is that this sign and its significance correlates quite well with chapter 5. Chapter 5 shows us that Jesus is God. He's equal with the Father. And John 6 shows us, and that's a good thing for us. Because God the Father has chosen to bless us with all that we need through His Son, Jesus Christ. As Pastor Gabe read for us earlier, Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's what God does. That's who Christ is. He is the one we can always go to with our needs. And you might say, Amen. Let's pray and go have our own lunch. Here's the problem there were many who missed the significance of this miracle. Many. Why? Because they were focused on the things of this earth and the needs of this life, and they were even confusing their own desires with their needs, and the results of this wrong perspective is that they had a wrong response to Christ they thought that Jesus being the bread of life meant that they could have everything they wanted in this life. And what Jesus was showing them was that as the bread of life, he was able to guarantee their salvation under the next life. But they didn't get it. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And that is actually correct. It goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 18 when when Moses says, there is a prophet greater than me who is coming. And the people are saying, wait a minute, Moses brought manna from heaven, but we got the loaves and the fishes. I mean, this is even greater than what Moses did. This must be the prophet greater than Moses. And they were absolutely correct about that. But here's the problem. Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, there's a prophet coming who's greater than me. When he comes, submit to him. And when they saw the prophet greater than Moses, they said, he'll get us everything we want. In other words, their response wasn't, we must submit to him. Their response was, he must do for us what we want of him. That's why in verse 15, it says, Jesus perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So so think about that. They wanted Jesus to overthrow their Roman captors. They wanted Jesus to guarantee their financial well-being and political freedom. They were going to take him by force. When you take someone by force, are you submitting to him or are you demanding that he submits to you? Of course you're not submitting to him. Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd. They viewed themselves as an army without a general. They would have taken Christ against his will to prop him up as their revolutionary king and political figurehead. Why? Because they did not share God's perspective. They did not have an eternal perspective. They were looking to the things of this earth and neglecting eternal matters. And as a result of looking to Jesus and saying, I like him for what he can do for me, they missed completely who Jesus was. And that's why it says Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. As was his custom, whenever Jesus was no longer able to teach the truth and have people listen, what did Jesus do? He left. Which, by the way, this is a pretty stinging indictment against the whole prosperity gospel movement, isn't it? A whole, a whole so-called gospel movement that says that if you follow Jesus, you'll be blessed now with whatever you want. Well, I've got news for you. Jesus has left that movement a long time ago, just like he left this picnic. They missed it. The people missed the point. They didn't see Christ as the bread of life, an authoritative and sufficient source of eternal provision. Instead, they looked to Christ as a way to get whatever they wanted. And that's the danger in this story. We must look to Christ as the bread of life. We must look to him as the ultimate source of the provision for all we need. But if you look to Christ in the way the crowds did, you'll completely miss Christ. He's the bread of life, not a means to get whatever you want in this life. You cannot come to Christ to get what you want now. You must submit to him as Lord because he's the only one who can provide you with what you need. Eternal life and salvation. He's the one that we can look to for that. And he's the one that we must look to. Will you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you so much for this reminder of who Christ is and how we can look to Him. I pray that you would give us the grace that we need to look to Him in faith. And Lord, at the same time, I thank you for Hope Bible Church. I thank you for the many ways that you're working in and through this church. I continue to pray for them and and your provision in the life of this congregation as they seek to move forward faithfully. Lord, we love you and we pray all these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.